The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. I'm Dave Cornway, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're recording this episode on June 13th, 2020, and I'm joined as usual by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Good day, Adam. Hello, Dave. How are you? I'm doing I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. Are you uh are you getting ready to uh, file your name and join the uh, $1 million lottery for uh, for your COVID vaccine here in Alberta? I got my second dose last weekend, so I'm I'm you know waiting the two-week period. I don't care about the money. I just want to have a beer on a patio. Well, it also means that you should probably enter your name twice if you've had both your vaccines. Yeah, I guess. The is that allowed? Work. No, That's I don't think so. I don't know. They've uh, they they said that uh, anybody can enter, but uh, but I, I think it'd be fair for you know people who get their second vaccine maybe uh, as the as the extra incentive you can en- enter your name twice. That's a good idea, actually. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah. yeah, I haven't I haven't I haven't got my uh, my second vax vaccine yet, but I hope to in the uh, in the coming weeks. I've been calling around and putting my name on waiting lists uh, at different pharmacies, so hopefully someone will call. If they have a spot at the end of the day, and I can uh, can get in and get my second my second shot. Atta boy, yeah. yeah. Do, do your job, Dave. Be, yes. a, be a good citizen. My my duty as a citizen to uh to uh to get 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 vaccinated. Exactly. So we're 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 thrilled to be joined today uh, uh on the podcast by um uh, a very special guest. Um, we're taking a bit of a of a different um different approach to today's podcast. Usually, we talk about the you know the day to day politics. Uh, of uh, what's going on in Alberta, uh, but today we're going to take a look back a little bit, a little bit uh, into the past, into a time when Alberta politics was actually quite a bit more radical, and the mainstream was quite a bit more radical. So I'm thrilled here to, to, to today to welcome uh, our guest Andrea has Andrea Hazenbank. Uh, Andrea holds a PhD in English from the University of Alberta focusing on the circulation of print and the reading publics that formed the leftist pamphleteering culture of the 1930s in Canada. Uh, between 2015 and 2019, she worked as a political advisor in the Notley government here in Alberta. Uh, and currently she teaches courses on media history and the news and consults on learning design. And her new research uh, continues to examine the intersection of print readers propaganda and the state of interwar Canada. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. Nice to see you. Nice to meet you. Thanks, yeah. Adam, as well. I'm really excited to talk to you. I, absolutely, we're 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 thrilled to thrilled to have you on the on the uh, on the episode today. And uh, we were chatting a little bit before the episode started, and I was saying that the 1930s is kind of like it's one of, really one of my kind of I think it's one of the most interesting periods in political history in in Canada and in Alberta specifically because there was at that point there was all sorts of kind of real radical politics going, like actual radical politics going on. Um, and a lot of, Alberta was kind of a, kind of like a testing ground or something for, for a lot of real radical political and economic ideas. And, and we're, we're going to talk a bit, a bit about that today and a bit about how the, the propaganda behind that and how that was, how that was promoted. But before we get started, I, I gave you a bit of an introduction, but can, can you tell your listener, our listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your research before we get started? Certainly. Um, So I am born and raised in Edmonton, uh, educated at the U of A, which is a wonderful institution that I hope is still around in a few years. Um, And I love working on this period. Uh, As you said, it's so interesting. There's so many uh, different factors. It felt like a state when almost any direction could be taken. Um, And I always joke when I started doing this work 10 years or more ago, it seemed like 
history. I chose it because it seemed complete and finished. And what I've really been feeling, especially in the last couple of years, is these echoes and these threads from the 1930s, the 1940s, uh, really popping up in unexpected ways today. And so I think getting to reach back 80 years or so, uh, it feels unexpectedly fresh and modern uh, with what we're experiencing now. So you should, you, you mentioned the, some threads that present day politics kind of that, that, that seem similar to, to what we, you know, what, or what politics in Alberta would have been like in the 1930s and 1940s. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? What kind of threads are you talking about? Certainly. Um, so it's this kind of sense that there's a lot of conflict, uh, a lot of chaos. <laughs> um, the 1930s, of course, were this devastating time worldwide uh, with the Great Depression, but Alberta was hit especially hard with also the, the crop failures and agricultural struggles. And seeing the different ways that uh, the left and the right or ordinary people tried to face up to some of those challenges, I think has been really useful to reflect on in this past year uh, with the global pandemic, with different kinds of recessions. We're seeing the same kind of ideas where um, people have very strong economic ideas. They've got really strong political or religious values coming into the mix as well. Uh, and they're basically duking it out to see what's going to stand up and actually uh, make a way forward for people. Uh, and I would say the the fights begun in the 1930s and 40s. I mean, we saw the founding of uh, a lot of the political movements that are still active in this province today. Uh, and we see them kind of forming in that time period. And I think there's a lot of unresolved uh, issues and questions and hopes from then that we're still, I think, trying to make good on today. So, I mean, you talked about the the you know the, some of the some of the economic similarities. I mean, it was really was. I, th I think it's 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 important not to understate, uh, and I don't think you do, but I, I think it's just to our listeners, it's important that not to understate the kind of economic desperation that people were in in the 1930s. The Great Depression was was at its height, um, as you said, the crop crop failures across the province. People were really in a in a very hard place, and and I think that. I mean, that probably made a lot of these more what we, what today we would call, and probably at that point, a lot of people would would, would have called or might have called a, a kind of radical politics more a lot more appealing. I mean, they were people were looking for structural, actual structural change to the economy and to society. Absolutely. And, um, you know, again, not to understate, but we did not have the kind of social safety nets that mm -hmm. we have now. Uh, and a lot of that fell to the city, the province, to a patchwork of charities. And so when you talk about the need for, some structural changes, uh, people were seeing the failure of their systems all around them or the absence of the kind of things that would help uh, hold a community together, keep a family or working person going until they could, uh, you know, find a new job, find a new place to live, uh, you know, find a new uh, establishment even. And you see this time of incredible uh, hardship, economic hardship. Uh, you see mass waves of deportations happening uh, you see lots of uh, police interference in uh, different political activities. Uh, you see really massive changes to uh, the Canadian criminal laws following World War I that were being enacted really at ground levels for political reasons. I don't think uh, it's wrong to state that. And so this kind of miasma of uh, activity of uh, threats and fear everywhere really produced uh, some incredible work, some incredible uh, movements, and also a lot of uncertainty and just a lot of, um, I think the day-to-day -day living was really 
hard to understand what that would be like. Absolutely. You mentioned police interference and, and I, I think you said, sir, mentioned surveillance of, of political mm -hmm. activities. And I think that probably the, the one of the biggest focuses of the police, I would imagine, would have been the activities of the Communist Party uh, and its various, the Labour Dominion Party and its very kind of various iterations and forms. Um, the the It would be hard to tell today in Alberta politics that at one point there was a, a Communist Party in Alberta um, that existed under various different various different names at different times, but actually elected people to city councils, elected people to mayors, elected MLAs to the legislature. Uh, I'm not sure if there were ever any MPs elected, but but like this wasn't uncommon for for a communist to be elected in Alberta in the 1930s, and and I think especially the you know kind of the radical politics of coal mining in in, in the Crow's Nest past. Uh, in the Crow's Nest past, you had um, you know communist activities here in in Edmonton and, and and candidates getting elected. So could you talk a little bit about I guess starting on the left of the of the political spectrum in the, in the 1930s, what uh, you know what 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 are some of the more interesting or notable things that that, that may have happened around there? Yeah, and you were absolutely right to point to the coal mining districts in Alberta uh, that were very, very radical, very militant in their activities. Um, you mentioned uh, electing people to council. So Blairmore, Alberta, elected a full communist slate and uh, renamed city uh, roads in their city about different communist party leaders. So it was it was not a secret thing. Mm -hmm. um, but the communist party was outlawed in Canada uh, through the 1920s and 30s. So a lot of this activity uh, had to kind of go underground. So you see a lot of front organizations coming up. You see a lot of um, sort of campaigns around legal battles to overturn criminal laws, to uh, raise money and funds to release people who had been imprisoned, uh, both here in Alberta and in other parts of the country. And you see the beginnings of uh, a kind of national movement around this. So what I find notable about organizing on the left is we often think about, you know, Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver as sort of the centers for this, but you see these threads coming out uh, across the prairies, across the West for some really um, interesting offshoots. Uh, the activity in Alberta, like always, was not um, fully embraced by maybe the uh, central party organizations, but um, they were certainly enthusiastic. <laughs> So um, when you talk about surveillance, one of the really interesting little stories I was able to kind of tease out through some archival work was um, about this police informant. Uh, so there was uh, around 1932 in December, uh, building up to what became known as the Hunger March, which is a massive demonstration uh, that began at Market Square, which is no longer existing in Edmonton. It's been remade to Churchill Square and was intended uh, to march up to the legislature grounds. Uh, it was put down violently and following that uh, very terrible day, uh, there were a number of trials and a number of investigations. And what came out of this was um, in the organizing leading up to this, there was a constable who had been attending the meetings who was able to uh, converse in Ukrainian and a few other languages that uh, were associated with communist organizing at the time. And the archives show the reports from this policeman into um, the city police, and they show the actual speeches that were happening, and they show um, the kind of sideways work that was happening to infiltrate and um, not take over, but certainly to keep tabs on what was happening. Uh, and then this same police informant shows up in the trials, and he shows up uh, giving testimony that then gets printed into 
uh, leftist propaganda pamphlets, and he gets turned into this sort of figure of uh, of ridicule. Really, he is put up as a joke on the stand. And I was really interested in this uh, person. His uh, name was uh, Detective Wilchinsky. And he shows up in the city directories. And what was really interesting to me was his name changes at a certain point uh, following these incidents. And what I'm pretty sure is the same person is using uh, a different but similar surname until the end of uh, World War II. So until the 1940s when things had settled down a little bit. So looking at that and looking at how one person was so involved in this and how it had these sort of lasting consequences um, was really interesting to see it show up in the record like that. Uh, doing this kind of work, uh, there's a lot of sideways activity you have to do. You do, I do a lot of reading in strange places, a lot of items that you might be interested in are often only available because they've been seized at some point. Uh, so, you know, it's a, a very different mode of doing research, a really different way to look at print to look at what was uh, seized, suppressed, uh, and usually hidden uh, from most people's view. So the the types of objects that that um, that were seized, we're talking about like propaganda pamphlets or material membership lists, like those those kind of things. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of the the pamphleteering or the propaganda? How did how did these groups communicate? How did how did the communist um, organizations and, and movement in in Alberta communicate with with uh, with Albertans in the nineteen thirties? Yeah, and print was a big piece, uh, and. It's hard to um, explain the extent to which any organizing group in this time period relied on printing in the press. So you see um, any new group, any new uh, ethnic group that comes to the city almost immediately sets up their own newspaper, their own presses. And so leftist organizers often uh, had access to printing, maybe through say a Ukrainian newspaper or a Yiddish newspaper, Finnish paper. And they would be running off uh, periodicals, you got daily newspapers, you've got weeklies, you've got uh, leaflets and circulars uh, and pamphlets that then get printed and, and handed around. And so some of these things were for sale in the city at a newsstand, that sort of thing. Uh, but others would be more of a subscription. So you would uh, write in, you'd fill out your blanks, you get things sent to you. And so it's this kind of network of press and of print that's happening right alongside the mainstream press. Uh, and and it's to the point where it's all on the same street. So 97th Street, 96th Street in downtown Edmonton used to be uh, a very press central kind of area. And if you look at old maps and, and old districting, uh, all these different presses, all these different languages are kind of lined up along the same street. So um, seeing these kind of extensive networks, even in a city that wasn't that large at that time uh, is really uh, fascinating. You know, we are accustomed to being able to communicate very widely now, and the extent to which things had to be material and you had to do it yourself uh, really changed the kind of things that were getting produced. So they don't look great. Some of them look absolutely terrible, poorly written, poorly edited, um, but that gives them a kind of charm that I really enjoy working with. It, it seems like it became a lot more, you know, the printing press, uh, the ability to to access the printing press and print your own own publications became a lot more accessible at a certain point. So you, you had a lot more, um, yeah, a lot more of these magazines or news newspapers or, or pamphlets kind of, I mean, it's interesting you say, you said being printed alongside, um, you know, almost competing with the Edmonton Journal or the Edmonton Bulletin and that kind of thing. 
Mm -hmm. And these publications are not shy about slagging the mainstream press either, uh, you know, and and pointing out all the failings, all the ways it is, uh, you know, controlled by capitalists, controlled, uh, suppress all of these things. So the same arguments you hear about bias in the mainstream media is dating from that period as well. But the difference is you, you actually can produce these alternate uh, versions right beside. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I always take... Um... I read a lot of old newspapers and, and I know like the Edmonton Journal and the Edmonton Bulletin and the, the Calgary Herald and all the old, all the old papers are still are, are available in, in some places, newspapers.com, it's on Google archives, uh, a lot of them are digitized. And uh, in the past, I've read a lot about this era in, in Alberta politics. And I always kind of take it, kind of take it with a grain of salt when I'm reading, you know, what the Edmonton Journal is saying about the, you know, the communist party or about the social credit party. Cause the journal, from my understanding, the journal was the conservative newspaper and the Edmonton bulletin was the liberal newspaper. And these were, mm -hmm. you know, the mainstream newspapers were pretty openly partisan affiliated or they had an editorial policy endorsing one political party or the other. So there's kind of a, um, at the same time, there's kind of this myth of um, that comes from kind of like the golden age of, of journalism in the 1950s and 1960s uh, that, you know, that newspapers are, are you know, they're neutral. They're not, not neutral, but they're unbiased. And, you know, when you look at the origin of, of a lot of, of mainstream newspapers, it's that's really not the case. Yeah. And uh, so I, when I teach courses on the news and we go back and we look at uh, printing and editorials from some of these earlier periods, my students are absolutely shocked at how blatant bias is. and how the sort of like decrying influence is also there. So they're really, really surprised, I think, to all these issues that they find in social media that they see, you know, in cable news today, they're really surprised that this was also true 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago. Um, and I think it's a, a fun moment to kind of jolt you into the fact that people aren't very different um, and that the concerns and biases and, uh, problems that people have really just kind of cycle again and again every every few decades the same problem represents itself as something new um, and I think when you get to look at old documents like that that becomes very um, present for you so you, you we, we talked about some of the like the the publications the the access to the printing press um, there was so there was a lot of ideas there were a lot of ideas floating around um, looking at the 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 communist side or the 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 leftist side of of or types of of, prop, of this this type of propaganda these type of publications um we mentioned earlier that you know these these people you know the, a lot of these these organizations were actively involved in electoral politics at the same time so mm -hmm. you know can you give us some examples of how this may have actually had an impact on the electoral politics having these types of media these this types of information just uh, so readily available yeah i mean it would certainly help you to reach unexpected pockets of uh, voters or of people affiliated. So in the 1930s and 40s, you see the beginning of what we might think of as ethnic block voting uh, and appeals to uh, newcomers. And we certainly see this as a strategy many parties employ now. Uh, it was It's very apparent in our federal elections. The most recent provincial elections certainly had uh, you know, material targeting different language groups, uh, different sort mm -hmm. of communities in the province. And you see that beginning in this time period. And partly this is because you can reach people in their own language. Uh, and that became, I think, uh, a new thing for Canada to, to be printing in languages other than English or French and to uh, have these materials that on one hand uh, can broaden a party's reach, uh, but on the other hand, 
can print material that might not be readable to everyone. So a lot of these ethnic presses became very suspicious to mainstream Anglo, um, Albertan and Anglo Canadians, because if you can't read, uh, you know, Finnish, Yiddish, Ukrainian, you don't know what's in there. And so this level of suspicion and separateness also increases, even as you've got this attempt to sort of reach out and bring people into uh, voting blocks. So it's this kind of interesting tension that happens. And, and a real um, a real racial dynamic as well. I, I imagine, I mean, anybody who's read about this period, you know, it will in, in the period of, of, of migration, different groups from Eastern Europe and Central Europe moving to moving out West will, will uh, you know, undoubtedly know or have read about the, the racism directed towards these groups, towards Ukrainians, towards Polish people. And, and um, I mean, anybody who essentially didn't have, uh, you know, a name that sounded like they came from the British Isles, I would imagine. Absolutely. And and that's alongside uh, virulent anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism. These are all coexisting. Um, but that idea of who is part of the dominant group, who counts as white, uh, really is flexible in this time period. So, you know, when we talk about racism, it is treating newcomers almost as a completely distinct race of people. Uh, and we see this showing up not just in in the press and in the material happening, but in the way uh, laws are being applied. Deportation was uh, a really big factor for a lot of people, especially when we talk about leftist politics in this period, because if people were unable to support themselves, uh, which happened in a widespread way in this decade, uh, you could be uh, up to be deported if you couldn't show uh, your kind of ability to to have funds and keep yourself. And again, this is a time when the city is basically providing all welfare. And so part of the work of infiltrating uh, some of these communist organizing groups is also a way of clearing out what might be called undesirables at this time too. So you could be deported for you know just being poor, uh, for any kind of low level criminal activity, for being involved in subversive organizing. So it's really a dangerous thing for a lot of people as well. Uh, so I really do, uh, have a lot of respect for the people who put themselves out there to do this kind of organizing uh, at great risk to themselves and their families often. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, I mean, we, we talked about how the 1930s was this, you know, kind of the, the height of a lot of this, this pamphleteering, a lot of this, this, these publications. Um, how did that change in 1939 when, uh, when the second world war started? I imagine something, I imagine it would have changed because the, 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 the national dynamic or the national attention changed. Yeah, and 1935 is actually an interesting turning point. Okay. Uh, so you see 1935 is uh, when social credit gets elected in mm -hmm. Alberta. So the U the United Farmers are thrown out. So you see a major sea change in Albertan politics specifically uh, that really rolled itself over into uh, the conservative dynasty that lasted for decades. So you see that happening. Uh, at the federal level, you also see uh, political change to the Liberal Party in 1935-36. And you see organizing tactics shifting. Uh, so we often think, okay, World War II comes around 1939, but the lead up to it was apparent uh, for years before that. So you see, you know, with the Spanish Civil War popping up, you see sort of the testing ground of a lot of fascist organizing happening there, uh, spreading to different pockets in North America as well. And so what you see actually is people on the left certainly trying to build unity. Uh, so who we might think of as more social democratic parties, uh, more of the hard left, more of the union organizing, 
really sought to kind of come together. So you see less backbiting on that side, at least for a little while. Um, but you also see the mainstream uh, media and also population very leery of war. Um, you know, we also like to think that this was something that immediately everyone took up the challenge and Canada joined in the fight and all of that. But it was not um, immediately popular everywhere. And so the kind of political organizing that happens up to there partly is about raising uh, the alarm about fascism. So I think the organizing that happens on the left uh, in the latter half of the 1930s is a really, really important part of that, of saying, identifying what this threat is, naming it, um, pointing it out, showing examples of it at home, so that when we get to the actual war, um, attention goes elsewhere, of course. And so what happens during the war is you see even more suppression of subversion at home. Um, propagandizing by the state becomes really um, obvious. <laughs> it becomes something that is actually a department in the government now set up. Uh, you know, there are stiffer penalties. It is harder to circulate information. Paper is regulated. You can't get it. You can't import materials like you may have been able to before from Europe or from the States. So things become a little more homegrown uh, in that time period as well. Make Shift by Albury Innovates your next podcast binge. Join us as we take a deep dive with the people that are driving Alberta's 21st century economy. These global movers and shakers are working to solve today's challenges, create new opportunities, and build a healthy, sustainable, and prosperous future for Albertans today and for generations to come. Just when you think you know all about Alberta, we're here to shift your perspective. I don't know if I could stress this enough. We have a top three institution in arguably the most important technology in the entire world right now. We will prove a lot of people wrong by coming out of this even stronger. And the way we will do it is by finding ways to help businesses be cash flow positive and by willing to, you know, find the ways that we can help. We're just starting to scratch the surface. And I mean, Calgary just this uh, last month announced the fact that they broke their record again for venture capital investment. And some of this is in fintech, some of this is in a whole bunch of different areas where we originally didn't even you know, have these types of core industries in Alberta. We have diversification in our DNA. We just have forgotten about it. Sincerely, we are blessed in Alberta to have all the infrastructure that we do have. Tune in to Shift by visiting shift.albertainnovates.ca or your favorite podcast app. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. I'm Andrew Paul. And we're the hosts of the Well Endowed Podcast. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation, or ECF as we call it. ECF provides grants to charities through the endowment funds we create and manage with our donors. Hence the title of our show, The Well Endowed Podcast. Every month, we bring you a collection of stories and interviews with fascinating guests who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. Through these stories, we look at the space where endowments intersect with your communities. So if you're interested in the people and issues impacting your community, check out the wellendowedpodcast.com. You mentioned the the Spanish Civil War and the the impact that had around uniting kind of uniting leftist groups. Um, uh, was I mean I know there were there were volunteers who from Canada who went and, and fought in the Spanish Civil War was was that a big was there was there was there any kind of big push in Alberta around with with leftist groups to recruit 
or I guess bring attention to it? Absolutely. Um, so what you actually see a lot of leftist uh, organizing turn towards post-1936 is this celebration of the battle over in Spain. And so there was an actual Canadian uh, regiment, the Mackenzie Papineau uh, Battalion, that was all Canadian leftist volunteers, basically, who went over there. Uh, it's something, CBC, if you are listening, it would be an incredible Canadian film to see something produced at a really high level quality about that. I think there's fascinating stories. Um, it's it's the literature from that time period is really exciting too. We're starting to find more of it. Um, but that was a sort of seen as a place to take your energy uh, and, and a new fight that had a kind of meaning. I think people were burned out at home in Canada fighting the same legal battles for five, six years straight. So to have this sort of new place to put that energy, I think was really appealing to a lot of people, you know, to, to fight a good fight somewhere else uh, is sometimes the, the best way to burn off your homegrown uh, concerns is to point your cannon in a different direction. And, and the, the cannons that were pointing in, 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 in the other direction and not necessarily in Alberta, um, but are not, so not necessarily in in the Spanish in the Spanish Civil War, but it, but in Alberta, the other side of the the political spectrum. Though I'm not sure, I'm not totally sure if at that point the the Social Credit Party would have been seen as the right wing of the political spectrum. It was also a very radical theory that that popped up in the in the early 1930s, coming from um, uh, Major Douglas in 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 the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. This theory that kind of uh, the the redistribution of social credit um, and the the A plus B theorem and, and for our listeners I'll link to all this stuff because it's <laughs> it's really hard to explain because it doesn't all really actually make any sense and that was kind of one of the one of the big problems big problems of of, of, the, <laughs> of the social credit theory especially when they when they formed government but social credit theory in Alberta um, started like it started to percolate before the 1935 election and I remember reading about how as you said the United Farmers of Alberta who were in government and actually interestingly this year. Uh, July 18th marks the 100th anniversary of the United Farmers of Alberta forming government in Alberta. So that's just that's an aside. We'll talk about that on a future on a future podcast. But <laughs> but you had uh, uh, social credit theory um, uh, enter the discourse in Alberta politics, and you know some United Farmers of Alberta constituency associations were adopting you know adopting social credit theory and adopting value you know policies of social credit and trying to push the the UFA government to adopt social credit. And then at, at the, and then and then there was this social credit party, which actually became an electoral competitor to them and and defeated them in the 1935 election, which was a huge, like it was a stunning election. I think the uh I can't remember what what the uh what the what the headline was, but I think it was the Boston Globe that had a headline that said Alberta goes crazy when uh, <laughs> when uh, when the, after the social credit party won and the UFA lost all their seats in, in the legislature. So can we talk a little bit about how that started in Alberta and the kind of the, 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 I mean, the propaganda, but how, how social, how social credit kind of percolated in, in Alberta through, through propaganda and through that type of literature. Mm -hmm. And we definitely do things dramatically here in Alberta. Yeah. Um, and the social credit government was such an anomaly. Um, at the time it was the only elected social credit government in the world. Uh, and, and BC followed and a few smaller regional ones popped up after that. But, people, uh, the founders of this organization, were really fascinated by what was happening in Alberta. Um, so if you look at print and publications from, say, like Social Credit Mothership in London, they are reporting on Alberta politics 
on a weekly basis. They have like correspondents sending them information and with, with great excitement to see what was possible here. Um, of course, that began to fall away after a few years. Uh, you know, the official central party kind of turned up its nose at what was happening in Alberta. And as you said, the social credit party sort of shed a lot of that uh, inscrutable policy <laughs> that it was carrying with it and settled to become a more, um, I won't say ordinary, but a more definable right-wing party. Yeah, more of a, kind right of a social, social conservative conservative party in, in a way. Yeah, as we would describe it or recognize it on the spectrum today. But in its heyday, it really was a kind of version of populism that you don't see in the same way. And it was a competitor to the CCF, to the UFA, and to other leftist groups because it was um, a lot about building public works and bringing, um, you know, services to people and, you know, shifting some of the flow of capital away from wealthy, uh, you know, owners and business owners to people. And that's an incredibly appealing message at the height of the depression. Um, unfortunately, the mechanisms for doing that are incredibly elaborate, difficult to explain. Uh, you know, we're printing our own money, we're building our own banks. And it, it really, I think, never sold itself to Albertans in a way. Um, you know, there was a lot of effort to explain to the people what exactly social credit was. Uh, and a lot of this happened after they had been elected, which seems backwards to us. But people, you know, were enthusiastic. And then for probably about close to a decade following then, um, the Social Credit Party really, really worked to um, propagandize itself and, and the theories of social credit to the point where uh, we had a branch of the government set up by the party producing plays about social credit for someone. I don't know, but they were being published out of the legislature directly, uh, which was, you know, a cause of some concern for the opposition, definitely. Uh, but this attempt to sort of explain and sell yourself. And, and, you know, in politics, if you're trying to explain yourself, you've already lost. You know, if you have to tell people about yourself, you've lost the plot. So this really uh, interesting narrative push is is some weird stuff to read for sure. Yeah. And you talk about the, um, I mean, there was a lot of theory. I think it was the man from Mars, I think was one of, one of the, one of the, one of the, one of the groups that are one of the kind of theater productions or, or, or radio play productions that, that William Aberhart and the social credit party put on. Um, I mean, the other, the other interesting part of this is it, the element of the, of the, the rise of social credit is, is William Aberhart and his, uh, his Sunday, uh, uh, you know, back I think it was back to the Bible Hour uh, radio, very very popular radio program that he that he hosted on Sunday. So here you had a you know a, a premier or a political leader who wasn't who wasn't actually the leader of the Social Credit Party in 1935. He was kind of leader of the movement, but I don't think the party had an official leader. Um, and and he already had a you know he already had a, a media platform and, a, and probably an increasingly um, important media platform radio back then uh, who kind of would, would use that to you know to to promote his uh, the uh, i mean promote social credit theory and promote his um you know his theories of christianity and, and i mean that I think that's the other interesting thing about social credit under Eberhard is it you know there is this kind of i was reading about this kind of new jerusalem kind of uh kind of, uh, of, of, of theories that were kind of poking around as in, and weaved it, weaved into social credit. Um, one, one of the most interesting things I think about the kind of the rise of social credit as it, as it was elected was the 
kind of the the involvement of 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 major douglas the the founder of the social credit theory who showed up in alberta uh, not long after the social credit party was elected and and kind of i mean from what i understand it was kind of he was celebrated but it was kind of confusing no one really knew what to do with him and he kind of expected to be to be leader in a way or or to be leading the movement not maybe not necessarily premier but but he expected to be a kind of a um be have a position inside inside the hierarchy so i mean the 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 um the influence of the uh the, you know those other social credit groups you know from england from as you said like kind of the the head office or, or the 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 mother the mother country um is is really interesting to see um uh and i think it's unique for alberta and and kind of kind of the influence they had over 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 the social credit party in alberta or the influence that they tried to have and and from what i understand like douglas kind of stuck around alberta and and I'm not sure if he was ever asked to leave, but they didn't really know what to do with him once once he got here. And uh, and 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 there were a lot of, I mean, as you said, there were a lot of uh, backbencher. There were a lot of were, the, implementing the social credit theory was was something that was that was quite difficult, probably because a lot of what they were trying to do was considered unconstitutional. Yes, the Supreme Court intervened on a few pieces of legislation that the Social Credit Party put forward, um, including their Press Control Act. Uh, mm -hmm. in 1938, uh, which the Supreme Court smashed right down. Uh, and this was, you know, quite a, a defeat for the government at that time period, uh, good for everyone else. Uh, and actually reporting on that earned the Edmonton Journal a Pulitzer in 1938, uh, reporting on that law and that issue. Um, but that sort of interaction between the ideal of social credit and its actual playing out on the ground, uh, as you say, is really interesting. And so Major Douglas, was sort of uh, an initial advisor, I think. He provided some some policy advice, had some ideas. Of course, he had his publications predated um, the election of the government. Uh, the Social Credit League in uh, Alberta, which was the party arm before it was elected, did have a publishing wing that put out a lot of his materials. So there was a lot of affinity there. But probably by about 1937-ish, you do see the backbenchers revolting against mm -hmm. uh, the cabinet, against the government. Uh, sound familiar? You get high hopes of a populist conservative movement. After a couple of years, the shine wears off uh, and you have to start controlling your own MLAs. Uh, so we see the social credit government set up the social credit board as a sort of quasi-governmental organization to keep a lot of these MLAs busy panels is always a good place to put your troublesome MLAs. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't possibly comment. But, <laughs> um, and so what you see, though, is uh, a lot of muddying of the message and of the waters. And you see uh, Major Douglas really kind of repudiate what's happening at this point. There's still a lot of interest in England and Australia about what's happening in Alberta. There's a lot of reporting. But uh, Major Douglas and a few others really begin to distance themselves from the directions that the Alberta government was taking. Um, and because of it sort of growing ideological distance. So what you see is more of this populist influence sort of happening in the background. You see a lot of things being hidden from public view. And so you've got the opposition MLAs who at that time, we're mostly independents. Another fantastic feature of the mid-1930s government in Alberta was 
sort of opposition parties shattered at the same time as social credit came in. So it was a kind of coalition opposition, more or less. Everyone was independent. So they didn't have the same kind of um, power or structure that we see in our opposition today. But you see really public scrutiny for what the social credit government was doing with public money. Um, you see really uh, ferocious debates in the House, uh, in the ledge, and you see um, committee meetings really grilling public servants on budgets. Uh, you know, why did the printing budget jump by $100,000 in the last two years or something like that uh, since social credit had been elected? And, you know, there's this real pinpointing of uh, a clear narrative where the social credit government is funneling public money to its own board that then produces propaganda materials, puts together um, unconstitutional legislation, puts together uh, really wild policy things that the government can then say, well, that's the board, that's not us, but was very clearly uh, pointed to by the opposition and by the public that this was a problem. And so the board continued until 1948, but really it was uh, a target of scorn since about 1938. It carried on, but um, you can see the journal especially covering the bulletin as well, just these debates that are not mincing words about what the social credit government was doing. Uh, you know, this Make Work project was uh, very obvious to everyone, but when you have a majority of that size, it's hard to uh, stop what a government might want to be doing. So, you know, getting the public aware is a huge part of that. So just 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 to just to reiterate to our listeners, the Social Credit Board was it was a board that was funded by the government of Alberta, but it was essentially a, a propaganda or communications or propaganda wing of the Social Credit League, which was the Social Credit Party. Yeah, that's correct. So there's there's many things named Social Credit all in the mix together. Uh, but this was uh, set up and run out of the legislature, but was not an official government department. So therefore didn't come under the same kind of scrutiny in terms of budget or, or public work that it would if it was set up in a more, I'm going to say legitimate way. So it's this black box where the government of the day could funnel a lot of money to do um, their partisan purposes, basically. And what kind of propaganda did the the Social Credit Board publish? Was did they have a newspaper or or, or? Um, lots of pamphlet kind of publications, like republishing uh, some of the the theories of social credit and that sort of thing. And a couple of things that I have just been looking at more closely are these one act plays about social credit, <laughs> and they are <laughs> terrible. Like they're, they're unreadable. <laughs> They don't make sense. They certainly don't explain what social credit is. Um, there's one that sort of is a parody of Alice in Wonderland. It's called Alice in Blunderland. Oh my goodness. Uh, which is fascinatingly part of a long history of things called Alice in Blunderland uh, that was used as political satire in the time period. Uh, there's another one that seems to be a reprint of something from England. It, it doesn't have a lot of connection to Alberta, but it's, uh, an, an allegorical play about this old lady financer and the top-headed prime minister conspiring to expand markets and, and you know, put the people down. So they're publishing these. Uh, I have no evidence of them ever being performed or purchased or circulated, but they have prices on them. 
there were uh, sort of roadshows that the government, that the Social Credit Board was putting on in this time period where, you know, they'd have uh, slideshows, lantern shows, perhaps performers, speakers going around the province to kind of uh, sell this movement to the population. And so the Social Credit Board is producing the materials for this uh, and then circulating them around the province. Again, I don't know how well they were received. Uh, if anyone out there has evidence of this being performed anywhere, please send it to me. Um, but as well, uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier, um, William Aberhart's work with the radio. And so I think radio is a really interesting factor in this time period too. It's a new media in the 1930s and 40s. Um, and it was, I think, used in rather um, unexpected and sophisticated ways by Aberhart and the Social Credit Party. They were very canny to capture the use of that new technology and its ability to sort of reach more intimately to the population. And so I think that um, way of doing things translated a little bit into their public outreach as well. Uh, so yeah, you mentioned the plays being done. Radio plays were uh, a very, very popular genre at the time period. And so seeing these printing as well as their use of radio, we can kind of start putting together their media blitz uh, for uh, their entire movement and ideology. So the the Social Credit Board existed for about for about ten years until the government kind of figured out, or I think it was probably, it was after Aberhart had passed away and Ernest Manning became premier, and then they they had a bit of they had a, a quite a significant shift away from the kind of the the more crazy or what we describe as more radical social credit theories and and moved to become more of a as you said what we we might recognize as more of a mainstream social conservative-ish, so social conservative-ish conservative party, but still a, a, a bigger tent party that kind of dominated Alberta politics for the next for the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that shift with Manning is where we get, um, I think, what people would recognize as sort of the seeds of contemporary Albertan conservatism. You do have that populist piece still in there. You do have the influence of evangelical religion and sort of uh, proselytizing happening. You have this sort of fiscal conservatism in play as well. And you have uh, just domination of electoral politics. So that holds true for, as you said, probably about 20 years until Peter Law, he comes and refreshes the entire system. And, and you also had some of the more... Um like after after the 1940 or after the 1944 election in, in Alberta, you had some of the more radical, um, I would call them evangelical social credit, social credit uh, supporters, uh, either were, you know, either were pushed out or they lost their nominations or they, or they, or they retired after two, after two or three terms. I mean, we talked a bit about the kind of the 1937 backbenchers revolt. And I mean, there were a lot of uh, you know, social credit purists who who were unhappy with Aberhart had, that he didn't implement the types of you know the types of policies that that the social credit uh, movement had a party or the social credit league for me had promised to in the in the 1935 election and and going all I mean a lot of as we said a lot of these were were unconstitutional and um, I mean you had these you know you mentioned the press act and the the kind of the response of the government to these you know to not being able to implement these types of policies was was quite radical i mean you had the the lieutenant governor who refused to sign some of this legislation who was kicked out essentially evicted from government house which was then the lieutenant governor's residence they turned off the power i think they might have chained the doors and sold off all the furniture on the on the inside essentially 
essentially evicted him from from his official residence. You had, um, and I try to explain to people how you know just how extreme some of these MLAs were in the early social credit days. You had an example of I think his name I can't remember. I think his name was Don Brown, who was a, a, a journalist who might, might have been at the Edmonton Journal, who was who had printed a story or published a story that um, some social credit MLAs felt defamed them. So they actually passed a motion in the legislature to throw him in jail. Like they, the Alberta legislature, Alberta MLAs passed a motion on the floor of the legislature to, to throw a journalist in jail. And I don't think he ever actually got thrown in jail. I think he fled down to Lethbridge or he was out of reach of, of the, of the, of the police at that time. But, but it's just, it's, it's uh it really was a real radical period, period in the, in the, in the Alberta legislature at that time. Yeah. And, and, really extensive abuses of power mm -hmm. uh, is the other half of this uh, against the press, against the public, against people who might want to demonstrate or vocalize something. And so it's it anything we are seeing now is actually very mild <laughs> to yeah. what was happening at that time period. So, you know, there's a, a big window where people who have concerns can still take those concerns. But yeah, it's just the, and the protections for the public were um, much narrower than what we have now. So you have more power available to a government. We don't have the charter in 1935. We don't have uh, certain levels of protections that come with political costs in the same way. Um, and so we have a really different playing field in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Um, going back to the the social credit board and like the idea of government setting up a kind of black box uh, mm -hmm. to promote propaganda, um, are, you know, despite all the, all the other kind of radical stuff we talked about, <laughs> we talked about. Um, are there any kind of modern parallels you could, you know, that you could you could draw <laughs> with, you know, perhaps another organization that's been set up, kind of a. Uh, you know, semi-government body that doesn't really have transparency and doesn't really have accountability? Oh, you know, a certain, some kind of Canadian energy centre uh, might be something we could point <laughs> to. The war room, the, the UCP's war room is, I think, a really direct corollary to what is happening. It, it has a slightly different focus. It is ostensibly focused externally. Uh, again, we don't really know what it does. It doesn't produce reports. It's very difficult to FOIP, but um, it is a place to take public money, uh, put it in the hands of appointed officials um, who do something. And we don't know what that is. It doesn't show up in the public accounts. It doesn't show up you know, in budget estimates or anything like that. Uh, and so opposition MLAs and the public spend so much energy mental energy, political energy, attacking this entity, that it really pulls away the work that could be done organizing elsewhere. So I think on one hand, uh, something like the War Room or the Social Credit Board is set up for ideological purposes uh, to push forward something that the government is trying to achieve uh, that maybe doesn't uh, fit well into a conventional political structure. But on the other hand, it is also a way to divert your opposition's energy. And you keep throwing up these signals that are distracting. And I think what we see uh, the war room doing a lot of, uh, you know, we, people on Twitter, love to make fun of it and have sport with, you know, its logo issue or attacking the Netflix Bigfoot movie or these kind of faintly ridiculous things. But those become a news story. Those become where we are putting our discussion, we're putting our energy, 
instead of on the work of organizing, of putting together alternative policies and narratives and, you know, knocking doors and doing the work. We are just having some fun criticism. And I think that is partly uh, a bit of a deliberate choice to kind of set up this balloon to test out some ideas, but also to pull focus from whatever the government actually might be doing um, in its organ in its own political activities. So I think there's uh, a little bit of juggling happening there. It can, can serve a lot of different purposes. Mm -hmm. We can we can we can clearly learn a lot uh, learn learn a lot about our present today by learning learning more about our history and, and especially in, mm -hmm. in Alberta and and stuff that uh, stuff that gets repeated and and uh, and inspired uh, you know perhaps indirectly uh, uh, to to the, to the present day. Um, this has been a fabulous discussion. I've really, really enjoyed having you here. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we uh, before we wrap up today? Um, just again, thank you very much. Uh, I hope people have enjoyed hearing a bit of the uh, more obscure uh, hallways of Alberta political history. Uh, and I would say too, just uh, as you are, if you have concerns with what the political landscape looks like right now, find ways to put that energy into something productive. I would say uh, it is a lot of fun to knock around on social media and to kind of, uh, you know, clown on people. But I think there is real work to be done uh, in an organizational sense. There are many different uh, fronts to look at uh, in Alberta right now. And so I think if we can learn a lesson from these earlier time periods, it's that sustained public attention works. It is hard to do. It is hard to pull together, but uh, it can effect change. So that is something I think is is worthwhile for uh, listeners and citizens of Alberta to put some time and focus into. Well, that's just that's a great message. Um, and I, uh, I, I, I wholehearted, wholeheartedly endorse that. Andrea Hazenbeck, thank you so much for joining the Dave Berta podcast today. It was an absolute thrill to talk with you uh, and uh, and to hear you share your knowledge uh, and your 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 understanding of Alberta politics in one of my favorite periods in our political history, the 1930s. Um, I, I really enjoyed this. I've been wanting to do a podcast like this for a long time, and I'm absolutely it's been an absolute thrill to have you to join us to uh, to to talk uh, about it. Um, to our listeners, if you want to learn more about Andrea's work, you can visit her website at andreahazenbank.me. You can also check her out on Twitter, um, and and you know she posts all sorts of all sorts of great things online. Um, this is our last podcast of the season, so we're going to be taking a break over the next few months to enjoy the Alberta summer. Uh, you know, Alberta is open for summer or something, but the sun is coming out and it's going to be warm. So, you know, regardless of everything else, we're hoping to get some, you know, to, to, to enjoy, enjoy a break. We may pop up with an odd episode or two if there are any big developments or if any political leaders decide to resign over the summer or get pushed out of their caucus, uh, we'll be back. Um, but otherwise, we'll return to our regular podcast schedule in the fall. Thank you to everyone who's listened and subscribed to the Dayberta podcast this week. And, and I, it I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, give a big thanks to our producer, the extremely talented Adam Rosenhardt for making this podcast sound so great. Thank you, Adam. You are a hero. Uh, he's waving. He's saying hi. Um, the Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Uh, send us your feedback on Twitter and Instagram at, at @dayberta or on the Dave Berta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at dayberta.ca. Thank you very much for listening. Please, everyone, have a great summer, have a safe summer, and we'll see you all again in the fall.